Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. I'm back this week after a holiday hiatus, and during that holiday hiatus, my usual studios where I record the podcast actually closed. The studios were located in downtown Seattle, but the rent was too damn high, so they had to close and I had to scramble a bit and, and find a new location in which to record this podcast, and I did. We are now recording from Clatter and Din Studios, just south of downtown Seattle, right next to the baseball stadium. I'm really appreciative to Clatter and Din for giving us the space to produce this podcast and keep on trucking. This week, I'm going to explore some philosophical views to help us understand the nature of the places and spaces around us. I'll do this by visiting the views of three particular philosophers, Friedrich Nietzsche, Immanuel Kant, and Michel Foucault. Now, let me admit early on that I'm not going to explore the details of these philosophers' views too deeply, just enough to spark some initial thoughts and, and hopefully some curiosity. Those of you who know these philosophers very well, you might roll your eyes at my approach, but, but I'm okay risking your condemnation, really. I want to make a discussion of these philosophers and their views on how we experience and should experience places compelling and relevant. So let's begin with Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a, a 19th century German philosopher who has been hugely influential in, in ethics, in literature, in aesthetics, the philosophy of art. And he is often considered to be one of the primary forces behind postmodernist thinking. That said... I don't really want to dive into his philosophical views, but instead focus on some of his writing and thoughts on the importance of, of places on the quality of his own life. He was an odd bird throughout his life. He was a, a bit of a loner. He was very particular about his diet, about his habits. Near the end of his life, he suffered a mental breakdown in Turin, Italy, supposedly triggered by witnessing a carriage driver who was whipping and beating a horse mercilessly in the middle of a square. Nietzsche could not bear that sight, and, and he flung himself between the driver and the horse, actually hugging the horse's neck and crying. Well, that doesn't sound too crazy to me, but hey. Before all that, Nietzsche ping-ponged around Central Europe throughout his life. He moved from Germany into the Swiss Alps, into Italy, and back and forth several times. His philosophical writings were often personal, he really chose to inject himself into his work liberally, and this really gave us a view of how his work and thinking was influenced by the personal events that were happening around him. In fact, it is a, a feature of Nietzsche's overall philosophy to really point out how cultural and psychological factors have more influence on so-called objective scientific and objective philosophical conclusions than was usually acknowledged at the time. Part of what he shared with readers were his views on the importance of food, place, and climate on the quality of his thinking. Here is a fragment from his book, Eke Homo. Quote, Most closely related to the question of nutriment is the question of place and climate. No one is free to live everywhere, and he who has great tasks to fulfill, which challenge his entire strength, has indeed in this matter a very narrow range of choice. The influence of climate on metabolism, its slowing down, its speeding up, extends so far that a blunder in regard to place and climate can not only estrange anyone from his task, 
but withhold it from him altogether. He never catches sight of it. End quote. He then takes an inventory of the places where dry air and clear sky allows for genius, wit, and refinement. He lists places such as Paris, Provence, Florence, Jerusalem, and, and Athens as examples of these places. I don't think this is too far-fetched, really. In a way, Nietzsche is expressing a, a naturalistic, materialist view of the relationship between the human body and the physical environment in which it is embedded. And by this, I include the workings of our brain within the concept of body, by the way. It seems reasonable to think that the nature of the particles that surround us and bombard us every second of a day will have a fundamental impact on how we manage to, to move through the world. Let's go back to Nietzsche and Ekeomo one more time. Quote, I shall be asked why I have really narrated all these little things, which according to the traditional judgment are matters of indifference. Answer, these little things, nutriment, place, climate, recreation, are beyond all conception of greater importance than anything that has been considered of importance hitherto. It is precisely here that one has to begin to learn anew. End quote. What, what I take away from all of this is not to discount the importance of some of the most basic features of a place, its climate, the features of its air, the quality of the light, to not take these for granted when it comes to deciding how to live a good life. Ten years ago, my now wife and I visited Seattle on vacation. At the time, we lived in the heart of the northeast corridor of the United States in, in Philadelphia. And I really, I remember being conscious of how different it felt to move through the air in Seattle. It felt lighter. There was a certain crispness in the air that I really had not experienced in Philly. I also remember the deep blues, oranges, and purples in the sky. Seattle really felt more, more saturated. It really felt more vivid. We decided to move to Seattle from Philadelphia, not because of some external factor such as a job offer or a family event that led us there. The primary motivation was to move to a place that really felt good, that enveloped us, that had a certain fit. I really believe that we are ultimately physical objects bouncing around in a physicalist universe. Placing ourselves in a physical environment that maximizes our ability to thrive without friction and without irritants is vital to leading a good life. Just like winemakers care about the quality of the soil, the water, and the air around their grapes, we should be more aware and care more about the physical properties that we choose to embed ourselves in. We really should take more care of our own personal terroir. Okay, let's, let's shift gears a little and tackle some thinking about how we perceive 
and experience the places where we live and the places we experience for the first time. Let's do this by, by taking a look at another philosopher. Let's take a look at Immanuel Kant, an 18th century Prussian philosopher who made major contributions in ethics, aesthetics, and what I want to chat about a bit, a theory of perception and experience. Kant believed that there was a distinction to be made between the raw materials that constitute our experience, such as the raw perceptions and feels, and an additional layer of a somewhat unconscious organizing activity that our own mind imposes on these raw materials. So, there's the stuff that the world throws at us, and then there is our intrinsic ways to process and organize that stuff into something meaningful. Our minds basically synthesize this buzzing, raw, perceptual field, if you will, into a somewhat stable and predictable experience as we try to grapple with the world around us. For instance, he thought that a concept such as causality, X causes Y, or a concept such as unity, that this cluster of perceptions that are red, crunchy, tart, are one thing, that causality and unity, for instance, are not features that are packed in the raw perceptions out there themselves, but rather those concepts are applied upon our perceptions by our own cognitive hardware. Okay, fine. So what does that have to do with our experience of places? Isn't that a little abstract and a little you know, philosophical geeky? What, what's the practical implication of all this? Well, according to this view, it is impossible for us to experience the world without applying these human organizing principles upon them. We can't take off our human goggles and experience places as they truly are. They're always mediated by our own cognitive filters. Philosophers really love to concoct what are called um, thought experiments in order to illustrate points more vividly. So here's a thought experiment for you to bring this home. Imagine an alien race whose physical characteristics were such that the way they process the data provided by their senses was really massively different from ours. If these aliens visited us here on Earth, their experience of places and things could be so radically different that trying to communicate with them and achieve a level of empathy might not even be possible. For instance, their, their physical apparatus might allow them to only sense the inner and microscopic workings of objects we are really familiar with. So when we try to find common ground with them by, by say, pointing at a dog and uttering the word dog, they may not be experiencing the, the four-legged, wet-nosed, furry thing that we take for granted. What they may actually be experiencing is a, a fuzzy cloud of atoms, electrons, and other subatomic particles just buzzing around and extending into what we see as the ground, the air, and the water in the bowl. Well, we don't have to get that radical and posit aliens, though. I mean, this discussion can help us consider how multiple possible interpretations of the raw sensory data that surrounds us can really spark different experiences depending on, on how cultures value and describe their relationship to nature. So... Basically, instead of thinking of Kant's organizing principles as hardwired goggles that carve up the world in certain ways for us, we can extend that thought, that, that mode of thinking, 
and explore how is it that our upbringing and cultural pressures around us make us highlight certain facets of what we sense and ignore others. You know, at times, and and for fun, I mean, if you can call it fun, I really like to sit in a quiet place and stare at, at those things that we take for granted, at mountains, clouds, buildings, what have you. And then I really try to push my mind to see if I can if I can blur the distinctions between them and see if I can perceive those those raw perceptions without those differentiations. I guess in a way it's a type of meditation. It, it rarely works, by the way. After a while, I can feel my eyes crossing. If you can just get your mind together... Then come on across to me We'll hold hands and then we'll watch the sunrise From the bottom of the sea But first, are you experienced? So let's move on. Let's talk about how the design of places and spaces can have a social and political impact on us. And let's do this by talking about Michel Foucault. He was a 20th century French philosopher and social critic who really spent a lot of time revealing how existing power structures influenced and determined our claims to so-called objective knowledge. He really did follow Nietzsche's methods. He wanted to trace the genealogy the sources behind our claims to objective truth and knowledge. And he really wanted to uncover that these claims were the result of social and political factors that influenced our thinking rather than being grounded on some independent reality and source of truth. In his essay titled Of Other Spaces, he discusses the concepts of utopia and dystopia, concepts that I I guess we're all familiar with, but he introduces a term for another concept that should be discussed in addition to these two, heterotopia. You know, when we think of the concepts of utopia or dystopia, we generally think of a singular, unified, complete description of a place. A place that is, you know, either a desired, perfect end state for society to achieve, in the case of utopia, or a place that is hellish, irrational, and extremely uh, undesirable in the case of um, dystopia. So, when it came to the concept of heterotopia, Foucault wanted to introduce the notion of a place or a space that allowed for multiple uses, multiple descriptions, not just one unified description. He refers to these places as both physical and mental. I mean, there are certain physical characteristics of places that are going to allow for multiple uses. And what multiple uses emerge will really depend on our freedom to actively use our mental faculties and our imagination to transform these spaces in many different ways. Think, for instance, of of choices architects and urban planners could make when they're designing public squares or public plazas. Some of these might be wide open spaces and they might be connected via broad avenues to different sectors of a city. In these cases it is conceivable that 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 space 
could be reinterpreted as a large stage on which to present artistic performances to the entire city, or it could be the city's stage on which political manifestations can occur and reach all the different sectors of the city. If, however, on the other hand, spaces are designed to be constrained and difficult to reach, then the spectrum of these possibilities shrinks accordingly. Here is Foucault in Of Other Spaces. Quote, The space in which we live, which draws us out of ourselves, in which the erosion of our lives, our time, and our history occurs, that space that claws and gnaws at us is also in itself a heterogeneous space. In other words, we do not live in a kind of void inside of which we could place individuals and things. We do not live inside a void that could be colored with diverse shades of light. We live inside a set of relations. End quote. Given the potential variety of meanings and uses that these spaces allow, it is likely that some of these might even be viewed as strange, as deviant, as, as really unusual at times. But this otherness, if you will, is crucial. It gives spaces and places additional character, additional dimensions. A single physical space can pivot and reveal multiple types of spaces within it. It could be an artistic performance space. It could be a space for political demonstrations. It could be a space for homeless folks to camp out and create their own city and live in it. You know, at the root, Foucault is trying to sharpen our awareness of and our sensitivity to the choices made by urban planners, by politicians, by those in power, as they plan and construct a shared environment in which we move and live. Think of a fascist architecture of Nazi Germany or of Mussolini's Italy. That monumental architecture basically dwarfed the individual and intimidated them by the regime's grandeur. And in contemporary times, I mean, think of of places that have been designed to have benches. But those benches are designed with hard spikes on them so that they could allow for sitting, but they're going to prevent lying down and loitering. These are conscious choices made by power structures that limit what a particular place could be. Foucault's point is that we should always challenge these choices, especially if it is clear that those in power are reducing the potential uses of the world around us in order to express ourselves and resist. I hope I have shown or at least piqued your interest about how some philosophers think about places and spaces. I, for one, really appreciate how they allow us to have a well-rounded view about our relationships to the places we live in, along with a view of, of the factors we have to keep in mind as we design places that fulfill us and make us happy. If I had to boil down some of the fundamental questions that we need to keep in mind when thinking about how to pick a place to live in, how to pick a place to visit, pick a place to enjoy, or when thinking about the design of the places, I choose the following three clusters of questions. Cluster one, do these places have features 
that allow for the creation of personal meaning for people? What are the features of places that would inspire the humans who dwell and move through them to find a personal connection with them? What is it about the place that allows us to feel and state, yes, I am part of this place, or, or this place is right for me, it feels right? The second cluster of questions have to do with, with more uh, physical relationships between our bodies and the places we're in. Do these places provide a physical fit with me? Quite literally, do I have some chemistry with these places? Do the physical properties of the place, such as the climate, the quality of the light, the feel of the air on my skin, do these make me comfortable? Do they allow my thoughts to flow freely? Does the feel of the place make me happy? Does it make me tranquil? Or, or if you roll a different way, does the feel of the place rub me in such a way that it kicks me in the pants and helps me produce my best thinking and my best work? And the third cluster. Are these places designed to allow the political and social flexibility that is necessary to allow a full-throated human expression? Do the places and spaces I inhabit allow a multiplicity of events to happen, all with different political, social, and cultural perspectives? Or am I stuck in places that are inflexible and are designed to rarely exhibit that variety? Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave comments about this podcast since all this activity is going to help us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where our podcast, videos, and written content all live. On that site will be a companion article to this particular podcast where you can find a wealth of relevant links. And, of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and so on. Take your pick. And you know, given this week's topic, let's have Monty Python help us close this episode with a bit of their philosopher's song. So until the next time, this must be the place. Emmanuel Kant was a real piss and he was very rarely stable. I dagger, I dagger was a boozy beggar who could think you under the table. David Hume could have consumed Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And Wittgenstein was a beery swine who was just a schlosh to schlegel. There's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach about the raising of the wrist. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. John Stuart Mill of his own free will.